Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello, hello. This is Owen Jones. Welcome to the podcast. Today, Claire Fox, I promise you I would be discussing and debating with people who I very strongly disagree with. And the former Brexit Party MEP Claire Fox is certainly one of those. She went from, I'd say, idiosyncratic Trotskyist to someone who was profoundly involved with Nigel Farage's political movement. Uh, And we talk about a lot. We talk about Brexit. We talk about her Trotskyism, her political journey. Uh, We have a little tete-a-tete about free speech. Uh, We talk about Boris Johnson, Keir Starmer, Labour, Tories. We talk about a huge amount. We disagree. That's how this works. If you want to support us on this podcast to keep us going and the video channel and all the various documentaries that we're doing and everything else, uh, then go to patreon.com forward slash ownjones84 and help us decide what we talk about, who we talk to. Or you can use the supporter function. Any support is uh, really welcome for the team. And also, if you give us five stars, it just means more people listen to us on iTunes, that is. So please do do that. It's hugely appreciated. I will buy you a pint sometime uh, in the future. Um, After that, nothing much more for me to say other than here's me and Claire Fox. I am very honoured to have Claire Fox me. Hello, Claire. Hello. Um, I just want to apologise for my absolutely shocking hairstyle, which is increasingly leading to unflattering comparisons with the Prime Minister. Um, your hair looks great, so yes. So the point, the secret is, I cut it myself. It's called DIY in desperation. The well, hairdressers of the that. nation, the hairdressers of the nation, won't approve. But in I, desperation, I cut it. I don't know why they just cut it. I was going to say actually because it's a very good haircut, and I think we should just arrest people on the spot with suspiciously good haircuts. I don't think mine is a good haircut at all. It's just that it's not as unmanageable as it would be if I let it grow with that. Oh, I see. Yeah, fair enough. I mean, I've got, I mean, look at this. It's just terrible. I couldn't go with that. Um, I can't either. I look terrible. Right. Hair, hair chat uh, aside. Um, one thing I was just thinking about before we were speaking, and I do find this fascinating because I, I'm what the Americans call a red diaper baby. My parents were, my dad was a full timer for the militant tendency, a Trotskyist organization which a younger generation don't know much about and i find this really interesting because of course you were a trotskyist uh in the revolutionary communist party which is a different group to my parents group there were lots of different trotskyist groups at the time i'm just really interested in not in a in a cut i'm just genuinely interested in political journeys it's something i i studied at university how american trotskyists evolved and some of them became neocons and so on and you, of course, ended up in the Brexit party. And I'm just wondering, what do you think the young firebrand Trotsky's Claire Fox would have made of, of that trajectory? Not remotely surprised. 
<laughs> because, you know, I, I ended up temporarily in a party that was standing for seeing through a democratic vote. You know, it was a position that I took on one issue. That's it. It's not as though I kind of moved into a new party. So as far as I was concerned, it was a perfectly sensible thing to do. Bit of a radical move. Um, went against the grain. I've been doing that all my life, but I didn't do it to be contrarian. I did it because I genuinely thought if Brexit wasn't delivered, there would be a massive democratic crisis. And a lot of people urged me to do something and not just comment on Sky Papers, which is what I was doing. And I went and talked to loads of lefty Brexit people to try and get them to arrange a platform to stand. None of them would. So I made the plunge. What I find interesting is I think the Revolutionary Communist Party is the most successful Trotskyist group in history. Because if we think about it, there's you, there's Brendan O'Neill, who works for The Spectator. I don't know if Manura Mirza was in the RCP, but she was associated. She's now the head of policy at number 10. What I suppose I'm just really interested in is because obviously we all go and put, I've gone on a political journey from certainly when I was a teenager, but... Like, did you all agree at the same time? Was it a case of, you know, the RC? Yeah, because, I mean, because it's quite, it's quite interesting because there's lots of examples of people who are Trotskyists in organisations who then end up, you know, Tony Blair was infatuated with Trotsky as a university student. Obviously, it did not end up as a Trotskyist. Like, there's a long tradition of that. But it's the way people within the RCP ended up going down a similar kind of libertarian route, which often ended up with them in, in right-wing formations, the Spectator, Number 10 Policy Unit, the Brexit Party. How? What happened? Well, first of all, so the Revolution Communist Party hasn't existed for a very long time, and it was hugely influential on my thinking and on my life. And when it ended, um, I set up, you know, I, I, I was the publisher of LM Magazine, that's got sued for libel and you know i ended up uh, setting up and running the academy of ideas i didn't have any sense of doing anything other than being depressed about the fact that the political party i was in had disbanded and wanting to carry on making a difference in public life in political life so i just did what i needed to do well, when you say did you have a plan no there was no plan now, i also never i was never infatuated with trotsky i was somebody who admired the way that trotsky had tried to stay true to the revolutionary spirit of the russian revolution and that was as distinct from the stalinist tradition many of you know the communist party who'd ended up as apologists for the soviet union and eastern europe which was a basket case and i was glad to see the back of it so you know i don't i think that there is far too much attention paid to people in the RCP. I just genuinely don't understand it. And and what? I don't, by the way, think the Brexit party was a right-wing party, you see? That's the other bit of the story. No, not at all. Oh, Nigel Farage. Stood... Yeah. Nigel Farage quite right-wing, isn't he? he was yeah, yeah, but 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 it, it, it formed in order to see through the Brexit vote. I wanted the left to be involved in Brexit. It's not my fault they weren't. I thought that it was important that the left had more of a showing in that whole debate. They left the stage. You know, I didn't. There wasn't as many of us in the public eye as there should have been, but it wasn't a right-wing party. I didn't go, I'm going to join a right-wing party. I thought, and it was a massive decision, 
I am going to stand in a party run by Nigel Farage. Never thought that would happen. But the reasons I was doing it was because millions and millions of ordinary people voted to leave the EU and the establishment wouldn't let them. And I wasn't going to have that. Right. So if there was an opportunity, which there was, to use the European elections to make the case yet once more that people hadn't changed their mind, I took it. I mean, it was a kind of weird decision for me because I wasn't particularly interested in being a politician. But actually, I was lobbied by lots of people who just said, you can't let this happen. I didn't want it. You know, I, I wanted to show that those people who were on the left, if that's the way you want to describe it, he was pro-Brexit, weren't just going to sort of whinge about it. So I, I gave up my rather cosy, uh, you know, job of commentating from the sidelines where all the kind of liberals tolerated me and stood for the Brexit party in which they did not tolerate. That's an understatement of the year. Yeah, you. I mean, I, I suppose the thing about what you could call Farageism, because Farageism is a very coherent political project, I'd say, which wasn't just about Brexit. Are you serious? Yeah, I do think so. I'll tell you why. I so, don't think so. I think Nigel Farage wanted, above all else, to... Uh, there's my cat. Okay, Rickman, do you want to just do you want to just sit there? Yeah, he's fine with that. Yeah, I think Nigel Farage uh, wanted to reconstitute the British right. He he has a kind of national conservative project in which Brexit is very important, but you know he's very strong support of grammar schools. He's someone who is on record supporting the privatisation of the national health service to replace the private insurance model. So surely, I mean, it's difficult to divorce surely the Brexit Party and its big charismatic extremely charismatic and one of the most successful political operators i would say in post-war british political history to disentangle the two i mean it was part of his right-wing project which has been i think you need to use your imagination right which is i didn't join nigel farage in a political project about anything other than brexit do you get it it was just a one thing right i have no uh, I did. I mean, I barely talked to him about all of those things that you've mentioned, and I certainly wasn't going to agree with him on it. I understand that it seems odd, but there was lots of people who joined the Brexit Party, voted for the Brexit Party, and if you use your imagination, you'll realise that I've never really understood why lots and lots of my friends stayed in the Labour Party when it was run by Tony Blair when he bombed Iraq, for example. But people do, people did, and they had a traditional sense of what Labour was, but they stuck with the Labour Party. I actually didn't do that. I didn't join a fully formed party. I joined an opportunistic moment that, to his credit, Farage and Ty set up. But, you know, in the referendum campaign in 2016, I wasn't involved in any one of the Leave organisations because none of them appealed to me. I spoke on platforms organised by all of them and associated myself with none of them. And I had hoped that there would be an organised left leaning leave contingent that would make a noise i thought you might have been in it i mean you coined the phrase lexit after all and i thought and assumed i mean actually assumed that there would be some enthusiasm on the left to try and dominate that move to leave the european union in the build-up to referendum there wasn't as we know that many and those that there were were pretty quiet about it but i had a platform i have plenty of platforms and so it became known that I was one of the people who on the left or associated with the left wanted to leave the European Union. Yeah, That's so it. And, I st and therefore, uh, all I'm saying is, 
I didn't, you know, I didn't stand in the general election for the Brexit party. I've got nothing to do with the Reform Party. It was a one-off. And therefore, you just have to imagine that thinking that Brexit was going to be sold out, I saw the opportunity of stopping that occurring by standing in the European election in the only party that was standing that was arguing to see through the referendum result. No other party was. And I've told you, I actually went and talked to some lefties and said, why don't we stand people? And they went, oh, we, we, we uh, yeah, we should. Uh, maybe we'll have a committee meeting. Possibly we could have a vote on it or maybe we won't. And they didn't. Hmm. And at the I last mean, minute, I, ch- I decided I'd stand. That's all. I mean, by the way, I should say this isn't me having a go at all. This is. No, I'm, no, I'm just explaining. No, I know, I know, I know, because I, I just, I, 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 I mean, I think you're fascinating without sounding really bizarre and patronizing like I'm podding at some sort of laboratory experiment, which I'm not. But I mean, what I think, I mean, do you still, would you regard yourself as a socialist? Uh, well, I never actually use that term particularly. But yeah, I mean, I find that the political categories aren't as satisfactory as they should be. I, I, you know, I'm of an age that I consider myself to come from the Marxist tradition. And I find it hard to, I mean, I see myself as on the left. But I have to say, and it's one of the reasons I agreed to do this interview in a way, that I think that these left and right categories have become a caricature of themselves in many ways. And I, I, I find it difficult that people will say to me, oh, you can't be on the left because you agree with right wing things. And then they'll say things like Brexit or even you're a free speech absolutist. These things were not actually associated with the right historically. Um, so, yeah, I, I do see myself on the left, but I also I don't find the labels that useful. You know, I, I mean, it's changed because yeah. I, I, I certainly don't think I'm not like um, Peter Hitchens, who you interviewed, who says, you know, I was a Trotskyist. I recanted. That was an interesting period in my life. But I'm now on the right. I mean, if I was that person, I would say it. That's what Melanie Phillips says. That's what lots of people say. But I'm not that person. So I don't want to say it just because people think it's the journey I've taken when it isn't. I mean, people forget. I mean, Melanie Phillips was was uh, was on the sort of soft left. I'd say people don't really soft left. Yeah, she defended Labour when there was the SDP Labour split in 1983 in the Guardian. Um, yeah, I mean, I suppose. I mean, I'm fascinated in this. I mean, you're right because I don't think Brexit is inherently right wing. Uh, I did coin the phrase Brexit. You're absolutely right. I mean, I suppose what I found, I mean, I went to a Brexit party rally in before the European elections, which I thought was fascinating, but it was very Trumpian, literally. I mean, there were people with MAGA hats, uh, people quite angry to see me. Some people associate with Tommy Robinson. I'm not saying the Brexit party was associated with that, but it did seem, I've not been to a Trump rally in the United States. I've seen lots of footage of Trump rallies. It, it, it just seemed a bit similar. Because it was, a it was well. I mean, I spoke at lots of those rallies. Some of them were not to my taste, and lots of them were like mass. They were, t- t- to be honest with you, it reminded me more of when Corbyn did the rallies. I did you say know, that was, video. I saw some. I mean, I mean, there were you know there were thousands of working class people um, at a live political event, many of whom I've now got to know in the northwest, um, who'd never been to a political event before, and you know heard me speak, not just me, but I'm just saying, heard me speak and contacted me afterwards. And they'd never been involved in politics. They'd voted leave. When I said they'd never been involved in politics, they were often, by the way, trade union activists. Some of, Lots of them, mainly the people who contacted me were in the Labour Party. So they were those people 
you know, if you want the red wallers, but that's a bit too simplistic. I don't want to overstate it. But they were ordinary people. But they had, they wouldn't have gone to rallies, right? But I mean, they'd been to rallies. None of us have been to rallies, and actually, they were quite good fun. I, they, I like debate, so I don't like the kind of speak at the masses and all that. You know, I'd prefer to have brought them into the discussion. But I'm just saying, when you say it's Trumpian that's a way of seeing it but why you know some of the people who were there might have supported trump but lots of them would have voted labor for years so why trumpian that just becomes a way of disparaging them and i also think by the way um that those uh rallies and the kind of atmosphere that was created gave a certain excitement to politics that has been lacking for some time and people were just so relieved that their vote wasn't going to be scorned as it had been. And you mentioned Tommy Robinson. I mean, Tommy Robinson stood in the Northwest. When I say stood against me, I mean, he stood as an MEP in those European elections uh, in the Northwest. So, you know, I spent most of my time fighting off Tommy Robinson supporters who abused me, were vile, you know, uh, put lots of dirt about me on the web and so on and so forth, you know. So Tommy Robinson, my God, on the opposite no, 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 side, no, no, opposite I get yeah, that. I, I'm, just point, I'm just pointing out, he never got anyone. He kept having street meets. Nobody went to him, right? In the Northwest, we would have meetings. And, I mean, thousands of people would come. This was a good thing, yeah? What was yeah, a I good mean, thing? Tommy Robinson was utterly humiliated in those elections. No, the point I was making was just, I, I went to the Brexit party rallies because I like going to spaces which are very politically different from my own. I go to Tory conference every year and so on. And, and it was just interesting because when I say I wasn't demonising well, Brexit party voters as Trumpian, it's just there were a lot of Trump supporters there, and they had anyway. But honestly- well, I know I have to say, in the time that I stood as a Brexit party MEP, I met two Trump supporters, and in fact, I met lots of people who said that one of the things they didn't like about Nigel Farage was that he was mates with Trump. So what I'm saying to you is, it just wasn't like that. That wasn't my experience of it at all. It's like the people who tell you that everyone who voted Brexit was a racist. No, right? I mean, I'm not, no, arguing I'm not saying, no, I'm not saying you are. I'm only saying to you, you know, when you go and talk to people, I mean, I did so many streets. I mean, it reminded me of my old days of being involved in left wing politics because I was like spent the whole of that uh, election campaign doing straight street stalls in, uh, you know, Stockport, Oldham, Burnley. Oh. Uh, my yes, old, all, my I know your old town, town. yes, yeah, where our, where we had our office, in fact. But, you know, we were, we were, um, I was doing stalls and they were not faint hearted. You know, the left had stalls from 12 till 2. The Brexit Party activists, the rank and file, the people who were on the stalls, uh, who, by the way, obviously were not Brexit Party because it had only just been formed. So they were from all parties going to help on a stall. They were standing there from 10 till, you know, 6 at night in rain or hail, stopping people. And I thoroughly enjoyed it because I taught politics to hundreds and hundreds of people. And it was a sophisticated level of politics, which I have missed hanging out in, you know, the cosmopolitan sectors of the Westminster. I have to say people were well informed, well read and furious. They were furious that they'd been taken for granted. It was a politicising moment, Brexit. On Brexit, I mean, because, you know, again, with that, I mean, I'm, I'm interviewing you, but just to set up my own stall, I coined uh, the term Lexit in July 2015, when at the time Brexit was still relatively new as a phrase. So people were, because Grexit was how it started, Greek exit, yeah, yeah. people forget that. And uh, for me, it was a case of, uh, I'm a Eurosceptic by 
background in nature. Uh, I criticised the neoliberal elements of the EU, said the left needed to debate the left exit, uh, Lexit, and and decided instead the left should fight in the referendum for Remain and reform. I accepted the referendum result for three years until I felt I'd lost the argument amongst Labour members and Labour voters. But in terms of you, what I'm interested in is what does Brexit mean? What is for you the the purpose of Brexit, if you like, rather than not as an abstraction, but as a concrete political project? What does it mean to you? So I think um, originally when the referendum was called, it was a fairly traditional uh, case of Euroscepticism, you know, in the, for want of a better way of explaining it, in the Tony Benn sense. And um, I think that what happened was that in the course of the referendum build-up, it became clear to me that so many, um, uh, you know, which I, I saw as, by the way, the kind of growing support for leaving the European Union was a bit like a kind of um, popular anti-globalism movement. You know, if you'd had the Occupy movement at St Paul's full of students, this was a kind of working class version of it, or not just working class, but there was a lot of that around. You know, people were reacting against uh, that. And the, the sense of what sovereignty meant did begin to have some purchase. And I do think that's why take back control mattered. But what transformed it and what radicalised the whole thing was the inability of the establishment to accept that vote and the way they turned on the electorate afterwards. They tried to disparage them. You know, you had the you did have the demonization and delegitimization of millions of people, phrases like gammon, um, the calling of people as racist or stupid or misinformed or, you know, taken in by Russian algorithms or adverts, all of these different things basically said to people, you know, you did not make that decision in an informed way. And one of the things that was fascinating for me and what you say, what does Brexit mean? I mean, Brexit's not a destination. It was simply the removal of one barrier of um, of democratic accountability from the British people, right? Any, or the, 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 the voters in the UK could now hold their own politicians to account. So I didn't think it was gonna lead to sunny uplands by any stretch. Um, it just wasn't going to be as scary as people had said. It did represent a, a, a desire for change, for social change, because people had felt that they'd been done to, I think. And one of the things that maybe would help your the people watching is that one of the things I've been most concerned about over the last decade or so is the assault on agency on the idea of people having control over their own lives, their own self-determination, if you want. And so the fight for Brexit became a fight both for popular sovereignty, that the parliamentary uh, sovereignty, uh, yeah, the parliament wouldn't have the opportunity to stand in the way of popular sovereign decision, as in through the referendum, but also people's sense of themselves, the fact that they felt that they had taken control, won a vote which they weren't expecting. Um, that they would retain that and not feel that they'd been screwed over and lost. And do you know what it reminded me of, which people think this is funny, is it reminded me, and a lot of the Brexit uh, stalls I did, and a lot of the people who got active during Brexit, because a lot of them were women, they reminded me of the miners' wives um, in, that had emerged during the miners' strike, which I was involved in, you know, the miners' wives' groups. People who had not otherwise seen themselves as political activists, but got a taste for changing history and fighting for their rights and fighting for 
their defence and so on. And they became politicised. They started to read more, they started to think more and saw that they were not just people who were passively observing, but people who could shape things. And that's what the whole Brexit thing means to me, meant to me. And that was what I was determined that would not be overturned. It doesn't, it's not God knows, you can see from now, it doesn't guarantee anything. It never did. But even the fact that it wasn't shafted meant that people would not lose the confidence that they had gained from winning the referendum. I mean, one of that because as you say, I grew up in Stockport and the ward in Stockport I grew up in voted to leave the European Union and people I knew who grew up with voted to leave, though I should say more so their parents and grandparents because when we talk about class, most, it depends how you define class, but if you're using the pollster's definition, which I find very problematic, most working class people under 35 voted to leave, most middle class people over 65 voted to leave. So it's complicated. You know, I mean, unless we airbrush out People who live in Hackney who grew up in poverty voted for Remain, and and also we raise people in some prosperous parts of the shires which voted to leave. It's not clear cut, but the point I suppose what I'd ask is a lot of the people I grew up with had very difficult lives, so they often couldn't get affordable housing because the government wouldn't build the housing they needed. Council housing got flogged off and not replaced. Their wages had been stagnating, partly because the unions had been smashed, partly because of austerity. Uh, um, they, they couldn't get secure jobs. They, those jobs had disappeared in the 80s and 70s and often replaced with precarious work in the service sector. What I'm trying to say is a lot of these problems were very real and deep and profound, but they were to do with the economic system. But a lot of people felt that they were to do with mass immigration. I mean, I know that because I'm talking about people I grew up with or the European Union. And isn't the danger, without going into that debate about, you know, I'm not, you know, I'm not trying to go into Marxist false consciousness, consciousness parodying here, but that Brexit won't solve those problems. And therefore, a lot of the anger and alienation people felt will end up feeling like betrayal, because a lot of people did vote. They definitely did. I, look, I interviewed them, I spoke to them. They voted to Brexit because they thought it would materially improve their lives. And deal with well, I, I'm sure that you talked to just as many people as I did. But the one thing that I thought that the left got absolutely wrong uh, in the whole Brexit vote was they thought it was something to do with improving people's lives materially. And I don't think it was. And I don't think that's why people voted to leave. That doesn't mean to say that years of putting up with, as you say, precarious working conditions or not having enough um, wouldn't affect the way people saw things. But you said, you know, and they blame mass immigration. I, I, as I say, I don't think that that was necessarily the case. That wasn't the debates that I had. I'm not trying to pretend that there was no one who said that to me. That would be ridiculous. But immigration became a flashpoint because free movement from the European Union was seen as uh, something that you were not allowed to challenge, you're not allowed to debate, you weren't allowed to vote on it. And you weren't because it was from on high. So... I think that emphasising the economic issues in the way that you've just done as to explain as to what people did, uh, misunderstand something, which is people wanted themselves to be taken seriously as part of the discussion. They wanted to be able to, and I think there's a kind of um, danger of a kind of condescension here because people might want, when they're poor, might want more money, but they mainly wanted more control, which is why the control thing happened, which is, People need to feel that they matter. And, uh, you know, it's not just a, a PR stunt. 
they voted a particular way and then they were told they didn't matter. So that was particularly irritating. But the other thing that you're saying is that I don't think that people voted Brexit thinking that it would solve all their problems. I mean, that's what the only people who ever say that to me are not Brexit voters. The thing is, I don't I don't know where that came from. You know, oh, we'll vote Brexit and everything will be great. We won't have austerity anymore. I don't think they blamed the EU for all their problems. But the EU was a barrier to resolving the problems they had because it is and was a barrier to resolving those problems because it got in the way. Now, the one thing that that if you would like. I completely disagree with Nigel Farage on is I don't think Brexit is a foreign imposition. You know, I don't think the EU rather was a foreign imposition. You know, the British ruling class actually willingly were part of the European Union. It's far suited them to be able to win arguments at the European Commission level for policies, which they then didn't have to get past the kind of rather awkward squad of the British electorate. They were able to go there bring back policies and say, as a fait accompli. So the British ruling class love the EU, as we saw in the referendum campaign, when even the Eurosceptical Tory party, the majority of its officials voted, or not just voted, campaigned for Remain. You know, it's a well and truly establishment way of organising things that evaded accountability to voters. And I think people understood that and they wanted that control back. So you say you can say they'll now all be disappointed. I think that uh, first of all they weren't that they were disappointed that the vote didn't wasn't going to happen. So we don't know that four years was very important because it also revealed to people what they'd never understood before that there were institutions that were not acting in their interest. As I say, it had a radicalizing impact. And of course, since we've left, we've had COVID. So that obviously doesn't help clarify for any of us where it where we've landed exactly but i have never honestly i've never met a leave voter who said i'm voting to leave the european union so that i'm going to get a wage increase it's going to improve my standard of living it's just not what was said and those who, who might have said you know i think immigration is a problem they were saying immigration and not controlling borders they weren't saying immigrants you know, there was, of course, a hard rumpy would have said that, but that wasn't generally the mood at all. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. No, I mean, the point, I, I, I don't think I've met anyone who thinks Brexit was going to solve all their problems, but there was... 
huge numbers of people. I mean, it's on camera. I've interviewed people on camera talking about how, who went through at great length often passionately the problems which were real in their lives and and how Brexit was part of that. But look, before I answer, there was something you said about immigration. I do think it's interesting. Before I do, yeah. Northern Ireland, I mean, the reason I bring this up is because I think people in the north of Ireland often just feel completely erased from the conversation. And, you know, look, I don't know if you, I, I support United Ireland. I suspect you probably do as well still, uh, if people consent to it. But, I mean, I best what was never raised in the referendum by either Remainers or Leavers was where was the border supposed to go? I mean, clearly people in the North of Ireland didn't vote for Brexit. So there's obviously the democratic issue there. Kind of, they had to deal with something most of them didn't actually vote for. But obviously there's, you know, it's going to ha- it's always going to diverge from Britain, get the rest, Great Britain on, on goods or from Ireland on services. So one side's always going to be agreed. So I don't understand because I know when Kate Hoey and others raised this and you applauded her stance, but I was, didn't understand what did people think was going to happen when obviously before 31st of January last year, we we had talked about this at great length. You just can't have Brexit plus not have that border issue dealt with. Because most 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 people had not seen most people had not seen at or foreseen on either side, and I agree it was on either side, um, that the European Union um would make a case that the uh, southern part of Ireland would be a major uh, would be majorly used to br- break up you know, in terms of goods and so on, um, they thought it was a technical problem. And it could have been a technical problem that was solved or resolved if people had wanted Brexit to happen or have been prepared to honour the vote, but it's become far more complicated and far trickier. And different ways of resolving it have, as we know, led to a huge amount of um, strife, to say the least. And just on the point about um, United Ireland or not, I mean, the the one thing in terms of democracy, the most important thing for me was the UK as a whole, as a whole, was asked the question in the referendum, not constituent parts of the UK. And the UK as a whole voted to leave the European Union. So it doesn't matter whether different sections of, you know, it doesn't matter whether Islington voted Remain any more than it matters whether uh, uh, somewhere else voted remain. The UK voted democratically that, and that has to happen. And at the moment, Northern Ireland has been dumped because it's been treated separately. Now, should there are those people who think that, oh, this is great because it now can mean that there's going to be a border poll and there'll be uh, potentially a United Ireland. But that's a different democratic question. The question posed to us at the moment is whether the UK that voted as a whole to leave the European Union should be allowed to. And the Northern Irish Protocol does not allow that to occur. So the EU still has jurisdiction over six counties of Northern Ireland, which is then treated separately to the whole of the UK. And even if you think that it is separate to the whole of the UK, it shouldn't be part of the UK, that has to be resolved by the people of Ireland. No, I, get, I, get, I get that, but you either end up with the... I mean, I, now I feel like we're going back to 2019 and I don't... I really do not want to discuss them. No, because yeah, I, I want to ask you about something else, but I just say I, either you end up with the backstop or you end up with the current situation. But anyway, on immigration... I don't think those are the only two options, but... You on know, immigration. No, yeah, on immigration. On, on immigration, because what you suggested is people felt they couldn't speak about it. And I suppose I just regard this, because I know on issues of free speech, I, I, I'm interested to know... I'll ask you about free speech separately, but on immigration, there was this, I do think, a pervasive myth that was that this is not something that could be spoken about. When if you look at what are the two biggest selling newspapers in the country, they're the Sun and the Daily Mail. And and actually, 
they've always spoken about it. I mean, I looked it up before I spoke to you. They've always spoken about immigration, not in a very, not in a positive way, but over and over again. They're the two bit, the Telegraph, the biggest broadsheet that are by sales. I mean, online distorts this now, but by sales again has always spoken about immigration, not in a positive way. Yeah, but, and, I, you know, but in two thousand and five, yeah. the Tory election campaign, Michael Howard was pretty much about immigration 2010 david cameron stood on reducing immigration from hundreds of thousands to tens of thousands completely unrealizable uh um, aim but what i mean is sh- what is this idea that we couldn't talk about immigration because well first of all i never said that we could immigration uh, i never said we couldn't talk about immigration well, you so that, that, that doesn't help i said you couldn't correct. decide on freedom of movement which is a very different point um i've never said you can't talk about immigration and uh just for a bit of balance you know i do remember that uh uh, Labour Party mug and immigration. So, you know, not just the Tories talking about it. I mean, a lot That's of people right, have talked yeah. about it. Very, very good point. Glad you made it. The, the, I know, I wasn't saying that. I was saying they realised they had no say over freedom of movement. Well, they That's could have not, I wasn't. The Tories in 2005. No, no. Listen, no, freedom, Owen, of freedom of movement. That's get, true. Yes. But they didn't want to win an election for Brexit. I know, but look, look, I'm just explaining. So, I mean, I once went to, uh, uh, I think it was called by the British Academy, and it was a discussion on immigration and a discussion on changing attitudes to immigration and how there was um, an increasing, that you know, they were broadly liberals who wanted more liberal immigration, but they were not sure what they're going to do about kind of changing popular perceptions around immigration. This was, oh, I can't even you know, 10, 15 years ago, I can't even remember when it was. But I went to it and I said, one of, so it must have been 10 years ago. So I said, uh, well, one of the things that I found is that, you know, that certainly what has um, caused a lot of discussion, more discussion around immigration more recently is the freedom of movement question in relation to East Europeans. And, you know, people feel that they have no, uh, you know, they've got no control over that. And that stirred things up because remember, I'm very liberal on immigration. And the people who were organizing the seminar said, well, we're not gonna waste time talking about that because we can't do anything about it. That's part of being in the EU. It's off the table of this discussion. Now, I was at a posh establishment seminar, right? But actually for most people, they felt, and they were right, that this was off the table. You couldn't discuss it. And for a lot of people, that form of immigration the freedom of movement and East Europeans moving into the UK was something which stirred things up. And it doesn't matter whether you or I approve or not, that's what happened. I mean, I live in Wood Green and in Wood Green, which was largely an area that is 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 people who live in Wood Green are largely immigrants. But the, the group of people who were immigrants changed and it's become now full of people who are from Poland. And a lot of the people who complained to me about that were Afro-Caribbean neighbors of mine, Turkish neighbors of mine, who complained about the flood of Polish people moving in, which I argued against, by the way, because obviously I have no problem with Polish people living in Wood Green. I'm making the point that it was a complicated matter which you were told that you could not uh, do anything about. And then on your point about whether you could discuss it or not, I think that you can't underestimate the fact that if people feel that if they raise those issues, that they will be characterized as bigots, that then sows this seed of the fact that there's something going on that they're not allowed to either democratically have a say in or be raised without being demonized. And we all know, but it's true because it does stand out, is that Gordon Brown bigot 
exchange was quite a moment because it kind of did illustrate something that people thought, which was people who ask questions like that are just bigots. And I don't think that they're bigots. I think that people can raise those questions and you can have an argument back with them or talk to them or see what they've got to say, not kind of label them. Yeah, I mean, I wrote about that incident in Chav's The Demonization of the Working Class. I mean, in fact, I read the book and I remember. But, uh, but I mean, I, I, I suppose what I would say there is, I mean, people could, of course, vote, they could have voted for UKIP before 2010 or 2015, and they did in sufficient numbers as to pressure the Tories into yeah. granting a referendum. Did, yeah. There was a democratic avenue to do that, obviously. But, they, they, but, but UKIP didn't have any power. I mean, the government, what I mean is you can't say that, oh, God, UKIP... The point was they could vote for it, but UKIP had no power. The point was was that you could not say we do not agree with free movement as dictated by Brussels about open borders in relation to Europeans coming to the UK. Yeah. They did not have any say on that at all. None of us did. I mean, just they, nobody did. You couldn't change that what, if you, you were a voter you in this country. You could- you could have you could have voted you could have voted for a political party as many did they did they voted UKIP UKIP then forced you know one way or yeah. another forced the Tories you then had a referendum we had the referendum the referendum was won and then everyone said well you're not having that anyway doesn't matter whether you won right so you vote you eventually get there and then you're told well, that was only because you're bigots and you don't like freedom of movement. I mean, it's what he said the other day. And you lot don't even go abroad anyway, do you? And you lot that. wouldn't know about Erasmus schemes. I mean, God, have you seen the bile that comes out yeah, from I, I, some I, of those I, FBPE I, people? Bloody hell. I, I, they've often directed at me, but I've, I've often direct, I've often argued against that. I mean, I, I think the point I would make just without, because I want to ask you about free speech finally, because I'm taking it available time, was just, I think the issue was in 2016, the Leave side argued for parliamentary sovereignty and a year and, and one, that was one of the basis of the entire referendum. Then a year later, the British people voted for a parliament for which there was no consensus on Brexit and parliament was supposed to be sovereign. I just think we ended up with this idea that the, there was that the parliament of 2017 wasn't somehow legitimate when actually people voted for a parliament. And well, let, let, let me tell you a story because you'd be interested in this. Um, a lot of people from where I'm from in North Wales, right, uh, voted um, in the council elections that year, if you, if you remember them. For the first time ever, they voted Tory because they um, were so sure that Theresa May was going to deliver Brexit and were so disillusioned that the Labour Party weren't. In when the, the the election was then called in 2017, Theresa May really believed that she could keep those voters, didn't she? Mm-hmm. But actually, those voters went back to voting Labour because, uh, well, and, and this is obviously, this is like loads of people I know in North Wales who basically said Corbyn's a lever though, and he, and he said he's going to leave. So fair enough. So when you talk about the 2017 general election, you're right, it did have a mandate, which was to leave the European Union. And and the point about that election was you said everyone ignored it. I think everyone did ignore it because Parliament then acted in defiance of the party's commitment to see all parties' commitment, or the Labour Party and the Tory party's commitment to see through on Brexit. And that was the dilemma. And that was the real dilemma for the Labour Party because I actually think that, that, that you can't underestimate. I mean, I've also, I actually 
know quite a lot of young people. And uh, despite what you said before, I mean, quite a lot more young people voted Leave than sometimes admit. But I've, I've done a lot of meetings in the Northwest where people who were Corbyn supporters, still, you know, for want of a better expression, Corbynistas, all under 30, by the way, lots of them voted Leave. They didn't always admit it in public and they sometimes mainly admitted it to me. But that was because they thought I wasn't some going to use it against them. But the point that they made was that they genuinely thought between Corbyn and uh, um, Seamus Mill, backroom boy, but, you know, but they were committed leavers. And that even though they hadn't campaigned for that, that they would deliver it. And they became so disillusioned with the Parliamentary Labour Party, who they saw as being at odds with that tendency uh, to leave. But they voted in 2017. That didn't mean that they changed their position on leave or Brexit. They assumed that Labour might deliver it. And then it became much more muddied. What is free speech? Um, it's the ability to hear any number of different views. I emphasise those people listening rather than uh, um uh, uh, speaking necessarily, but it's the ability to have access to all of the ideas without there being any restrictions so that people can work out what they think for themselves. I think that's a really interesting definition. I mean, I suppose what I would argue there is in terms of being exposed to variety of views, if we look at the British media ecosystem, the vast majority of newspapers support editorially the Conservatives, just a fact, that the opinions which we see represented in the media ecosystem on opposition to immigration, uh, to support for privatisation, for austerity, for right-wing economics over the years, there's been no shortage of that. But no national newspaper in the country supports nationalisation of the key utilities on significantly hiking taxes on on, on the rich. Uh, notwithstanding Rishi Sunak's uh, sort of soon-to-be soon U-turn on, on corporation tax, uh, whether it be, I don't know, just socialist ideas such as that, such as um, trade unions should be given stronger rights and the Thatcherite anti-union laws should be reversed. So actually, if we're talking about which opinions are marginalised, isn't it true, given right-wing ideas and everything from immigration to taxation to spending are very, very dominant in the media, whilst left-wing ideas on nationalisation, taxation, spending, trade union rights, those are the marginalised opinions in our media. No, well, I mean, first of all, we could have an argument about whether they're the core tenets of left-wing ideas. But anyway, um, I don't uh, doubt that if you're on the left, you don't feel represented by an establishment media. This is no surprise to me. I mean, I was a publisher of LM magazine, an alternative version of the media you're running this as a as distinct from mainstream media i mean people who have had dissident views have always had to create their own platforms and i've been trying to do that for as long as i can remember yeah so um good i i don't anticipate that anyone's going to do me a favor and kind of hand it to me so what when you say you know what's free speech the point about free speech is it then allows you to have a platform like this. I mean, free speech is just simply where you say, straightforwardly, um, all opinions should have 
you know, uh, should be considered, yeah? And let's go look around and therefore you wouldn't ban anyone. I wouldn't want you to be banned. I wouldn't want, but I also wouldn't want uh, views which I despise to be banned either because that's the point. So free speech is where you don't make those distinctions. You defend the foundational value of speech precisely so that you can do what you're trying to do in a way so that you can give space for people who have unconventional anti-establishment views the opportunity to get an airing and a hearing yeah i mean i'd say on that this is what i mean so, uh, that's a good case study this youtube channel because i used to have a youtube chat I, I still work for the guardian as a columnist but they shut down my video channel for political reasons i'm not going into anything further than that but i don't think that's i might be i might find that irritating but it's not censorship I, i'm not it's not it's not me being banned because yeah, my but I, but, I mean yeah but i'm not saying it yeah, but I'm not saying it is. I mean, you're you're assuming you know what I think is being banned. No, 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 I mean, I'm not. Often people equate the right to a platform to the right of freedom of speech, and I think they're just completely. So when people no, get, but well, that's platform, completely fair, to... completely yeah. fair. But I don't do that. I, I I've never thought that a right to a platform is freedom of speech. I didn't say that because I don't think it. Um, I run a festival called the Battle of Ideas Festival through the Academy of Ideas. Bloody good festival it is too, and no one has a right to speak on the panels. You know ultimately there's an editorial team and we decide i've never thought that i had a right to be published by anyone i never thought i had a right to a platform however in the no platform controversies if people are invited to speak um then i think that there is a problem of no platforming them once they've been invited and i also think there's a broader crisis of free speech at the moment and i think it would be disingenuous not to acknowledge this where there is a chilling effect on in particular areas where you are unlikely to invite people because you think their views will cause trouble. You know, this might be at universities or what have you. And I'm obviously thinking here of the controversies, particularly at the moment, around gender critical feminists and uh, so on, who are already pre no platformed because their views have been dis decisively so. Um, attacked as as bigotry that people wouldn't uh, dare kind of invite people. So I think there's, I just don't think that it's a black and white issue. I don't, I think you're absolutely right to say no one deserves a platform or no one's got a right to a platform. I mean, you and I are both very lucky and very privileged. I mean, you've got a, a gig at The Guardian and although they might have taken away your YouTube channel, you know, you've had mass exposure. Um, from quite young, you know, I, I I never have complained about not having a platform. I've been very lucky in the last 20 years. Um, I'm, I've never even complained when I've been disinvited from universities because it's hardly, it doesn't matter, you know, that's not the point. But I do think there's a clamping down on the range of issues which we consider to be uh, acceptable to debate. And I think that's hugely problematic. And that, the I left should be very wary of endorsing it. I mean, when we talk about, and I won't take you for too much longer because I've taken so much of your time, you've been very generous, but on what you call gender critical feminism, I suppose, I, I really think without getting to, let's not go into the ins and outs of trans rights, which I passionately support and have suffered professional consequences as a result, which kind of is, is why I find this whole conversation so frustrating because actually almost all newspapers in Britain do not have my opinion on trans rights. And if you look through various newspapers, their coverage of trans rights is actually overwhelmingly 
hostile. It's quite similar, actually, to how gay people were portrayed in the 80s. Potential sexual predators, uh, biology is destiny. I thought we weren't doing this conversation. You're going to invite okay. me to come back. But the point, no, but what I'm pointing to is that but this is a classic example of, I think, of how I dishonest this conversation is. Not this, just the general conversation nationally, because trans people who oppose trans rights have almost all newspapers on their side. Whilst The Guardian, I work for The Guardian, they don't have my position on trans rights editorially at all. It's caused massive uproar internally, The Guardian editorial position, which is not my position at all. No British newspaper has my position. So I suppose well, my why, question is... Why are you limiting this to newspaper? I don't understand why you've got this thing about the media. debate in this country. They are the... No, but, well, well, first of all, first of all, I don't necessarily think they do dominate the debate in this country. And secondly, I, I, I refute that um that idea that there is only kind of one version of what's going on in i mean you will know this but talking about a march through the institutions i mean the fact that we had that stupid row last week in the house of lords about the removal of the word woman from the maternity bill but actually there is a genuine uh, a bit of a shock to me to discover that the house of lords are so keen on the uh, gender and diversity agenda, it might be box ticking, whatever, that they won't do anything to offend certain organisations. Again, we don't want to rehearse all this, right? They, but they won't offend the trans rights lobby as seen, right? And so it's a big fight to get the word woman in the maternity bill, which didn't happen, by the way. They compromised on mother. I mean, that was the kind of big victory. In other words, I so I don't think it's just newspapers that where these things are played out for a start off. Um, I am concerned about what's happening on university campuses, not because university campuses are the be all and end all, but because up to, you know, 50% of young people go to university these days. So it's not like when I was young and it was like a small group. This is actually a substantial cohort of young people are in an atmosphere where there is an absolute verboten debate on these questions. But it's not just that question. I mean, there's just a broader range of issues for which you can be seen to be being offensive and um, where your words are seen to be harmful. I think the expansion of J.S. Mill's harm principle from physical harm to psychological harm has had a huge chilling effect. And I do think that people walk on eggshells and don't feel that they can say or explore. It's not even say what they mean but explore and ask awkward questions. And for the reasons which you started off saying about the media, which is that if you have views that are going against the grain, you always have to therefore defend the space for all views to be heard, precisely so that dissident views stand a chance of survival. That's what I've always believed. That's what the left, for me, has done successfully. It's forced its views onto the agenda by using alternative platforms and not hopefully being closed down or by being labelled, whether that's by the establishment or those who call us bigots, if you happen to have a particular view on trans rights, which, you know, goes against a, a narrow orthodoxy because, of course, I support uh, uh, um, uh, trans rights, just not a version that um, is at the moment dominant. Yeah, sure. I mean, all I'd say, I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll finish because I want to get your pity views on Boris Johnson and Keir Starmer. But um, 
all I'd say is I think we have a never-ending discussion about trans rights and trans people, which largely excludes trans people because there was no trans member of parliament and there was barely any trans journalist. So we constantly have this, the spectator, various newspapers. Yeah, but you know, I mean, you, you will know and you can imagine that a lot of the people that I talk to are trans people who would just not involved in the activist thing so we're just going to end up you know i don't want to use them as a weapon in the argument and i don't think it's appropriate and there is an argument about um women's rights that is important to have and which when i try and say that i am told that i am representing a bigoted point of view and what i'm trying to say to you which is why Again, I came on. If people call you a bigot, you might not like it, but that is their freedom of speech. No, no, no. But they don't call me a bigot with an expectation of us having a chat. They call people bigots as a way of barring them from being allowed to speak. That's where the free speech bit comes in. People always, that side of the argument dominates this. No, no, Owen. Owen, Oppose the trans rights. Owen, but think about, no, but what what I'm trying to say to you is there's a new tactic on the block, which is, that you call people, you delegitimize them so that you don't have to engage with them. You know, if you basically said, look, so-and-so's a Nazi, right? So-and-so's a fascist, so-and-so's a, 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 a racist. I, I have absolutely no problem with someone saying, if I'm invited, you're a bigot. I mean, I don't mind that bit. I'm saying it's used as a way of refusing to engage. Now, the point, you know, I, no, but I'm, I'm saying, but I'm, I'm, I'm just explaining. You know, I know that there will be people who will not approve of me coming on your show around this issue because they'll say, why give him any publicity? They'll say, Suzanne Moore. They'll say, you know, you know what they'll I say. Right? Suzanne Moore, but it would be an irrelevance. Because no, look, I'm just, look, I'm simply explaining to you yeah. that that will be said. I think, however, that that would be wrong. Because I think it's important that these conversations happen. And hopefully you shine more light on things by having conversations Definitely. than basically going, Owen Jones is da 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 right? Not worth engaging. Yeah, well, there will be people who will say that. You'll have the same with me. People will say, why did you have her on, right? Bloody blah, blah, right? I always Actually, engage, yeah, I always engage yeah. with people with different opinions. But Fine. I'm, well, but, that's all I'm saying. And that's what free speech is. I don't Free know, well, speech I don't allows you to do that. I, I don't agree with that because the right, whether people invite people or not to debate and discuss, I happen to like debating with the, from you to Peter Hitchens have been on the show, Piers Morgan and so on. But but there's no obviously rights for anyone to, I mean, you on your platforms, you don't have to invite me to your festival yeah. of ideas. You know, I mean, that that's not to do with freedom of speech. It's, no, it's no, a, but I said the positive gain of free speech is where people engage with each other. And I'm simply saying that if there's the possibility, I'm not suggesting that you have loads of people on, you know, people say to me and people have said to me, you know, and it's nothing worse than kind of going to some student free speech society and they go, we'll show them, we'll show how radical we are as free speeches. We're thinking of inviting Katie Hopkins. And I'll go, why would you invite her? She's an idiot, right? No, exactly. So I'm not advocating that you illustrate it. What I'm saying is this conversation, however, illustrates what, probably people in our own echo chambers might try and caricature as a conversation that isn't worthwhile happening. That's the only point I'm making. You offered me a platform and I said yes. Let's finish quickly on, um, yeah, I mean, I'd say rights for freedom of speech is definitely the right to say things without being criminalised. But anyway, on Boris Johnson and Keir Starmer, 
hit me with it. What do you think of them both? Oh, God. Uh, Boris, <laughs> Boris, I know, it's very difficult. Boris Johnson, um, any any possibility that anyone would see him as somebody associated with freedom as and liberty, which, by the way, I consider to be important foundational cornerstones of enlightenment thinking. Uh, he's got a way. You mentioned the word libertarian before. I don't consider myself a libertarian because I know that's just used as a slur, but I do believe in freedom. Any opportunity that he would ever be able to say that he's a liberty lover has gone in this pandemic, something we haven't discussed and which I know you and I would probably disagree with. He does appear to have very little in the way of leadership skills and the cabinet has been a disgrace, but he will get still far on having delivered Brexit, I think. Um, and that, so that's him, but you know, so, uh, you know, I, I don't think the 80 majority is as, secure as he would like it however i mean what's keir starmer all about i mean what is he all about i have no clue what he stands for i mean i didn't particularly like him as he was he the attorney general or when he did the law thing i never know what that he word is director public prosecutions yes that's a really important role that i've just got wrong anyway that 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 role he actually introduced i think some very dangerous uh, incursions into um, innocent until proven guilty, and I think some of his victim sentence stuff was very dangerous. So I don't really, I didn't really have a lot of time for him. I just feel that his, um, you know, he he just feels to me to be soporific. I don't know whether it, you know, was he taking the knee? Was he not taking the knee? I'm not even making a comment as to whether he should have done. What I'm saying is, he talk about Boris Johnson and U-turns. There is no clear sense and i think what we of, of of his ideological commitments he did make a commitment to carrying on the political trajectory of the corbyn led labor party even though that got completely mired and rightly discredited in my view around anti-semitism but regardless he said he'd carry it on but he hasn't carried it on has he but what do we do we know at all what he stands for i don't know i haven't got a clue and I think it indicates that the mainstream political parties have been hollowed out. You know, they haven't got a substantial base, in my view. I think the Labour Party does not represent the people of Labour, you know, the people who labour in this country. And I don't think the Conservative Party are, are very conservative. I don't necessarily want them to be, I just don't think they're very conservative. I don't even go along with you that they're all kind of full of neoliberals. I mean, they also haven't got a clue what they stand for. So. I'm afraid it's time to build a new political movement. But, you know, I'm a bit old for that. I just try and create the space and the debate that encourages others to do it. And so began on the Owen Jones show, the launch of the Claire Fox political movement to transform this country. Uh, I don't have a comeback on Keir Starmer, so we'll just have to leave it there, I'm afraid. But that was great, Claire. I really appreciated it. Thanks so much for coming on. That's fine. Thanks. Thanks for listening to that. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. We've got so much more to come. Do support us on patreon.com forward slash owenjones84 or the support function in the podcast description. Give us those five stars. You know you want to. And we will speak to you soon.